0: Okay, good. We just have the one, Scott.
1: Tasha, I feel like burrito lettuce is uh, texturally displeasing. (laughs) You don't want that crunch. You want a nice, soft consistency with the burrito. Uh,
0: Great. We ended up with that, Scott. All right. Well, you can't win them all. In our last episode, we discussed Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 adaptation of a Jack Finney novel about alien invaders that steal human forms and memories in the name of species survival and 1970s paranoia. This week, we'll see how Philip Kaufman's brand of 1970s paranoia compares to the 2019 brand, with Jordan Peele's horror movie Us forcing a privileged family to confront duplicates of themselves who've had a much harder and more horrifying life. Jordan Peele has said that his movie Us is fundamentally about America and how Americans tend to want to find a vaguely defined other to blame for all its troubles, whether that other is people from other countries who want to steal our jobs and freedoms, or people within this country who are trying to run things in ways we disagree with. Introducing the film at its South by Southwest premiere, he said he felt Americans need to confront the idea that maybe the real threat is Us. Hence, Us, a movie where people are confronted by exact duplicates of themselves, which seem to represent roads not taken. We'll warn you on this one. A lot of the experience of Us comes in the ways that the mysteries unfold, and it's impossible to discuss what's both interesting and troublesome about this movie without giving away things you're clearly meant to experience for yourself. So keep in mind that this is a spoiler-filled podcast, And here we go with what's going on in us. In the film, Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke play a couple, Adelaide and Gabe, who are headed off to a vacation with their two kids, teenager Zora and quiet kid Jason. Their trip takes them to a Santa Cruz beach Adelaide remembers from childhood when she encountered a spooky double of herself in a funhouse. Shortly after they arrive, that double, now grown to adulthood, shows up at her home with doubles of Gabe and the kids in tow, and a night of bloody mayhem ensues. Adelaide's double, who the script names Red, has some pointed messages about Adelaide's life of privilege and comfort, and how it contrasts with the pain and privation Red has lived with. Red and her band want to kill Adelaide and her family and replace them. This seems like a fairly simple metaphor about the rich versus the poor in America, except that new elements keep emerging, and every time the audience thinks it's got a handle on the rules for Red's people, those rules change, shifting the metaphor and the focus of the film. We'll get into the details after this.
2: There's a family in our driveway.
1: It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you wanna get crazy, we can get crazy!
0: What are you people? It's us. They look exactly like us. They think like us.
2: They know where we are.
0: We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us and we kill them. So guys, normally we start this thing with, what'd you think of the movie? But I think there's actually a bigger question here, which is how much are you engaging with the bigger conversation about the movie? Like, did you just watch it or are you reading the umpty jillion like think pieces and analysis pieces around it?
2: I have a thing called Instapaper where I hit read later for articles, <laughs> which I theoretically get around to later. Uh, but there's been so many interesting looking articles about this. I haven't actually dug into that much, but I'm excited to explore it. Uh, I, I think Matt Zoller sites referred to the commentary around it as prismatic because there's just so many different takes on it and they're all intriguing and not necessarily wrong either. There's a lot of different ways to look at this film and I think that's part of what Makes it so compelling.
1: Well, the, there's <laughs> the one about it being about how socialism is bad. Is <laughs> that, I think you can say that was a, that that one is wrong. Uh, but no, I haven't been following the commentary on the movie as much as I should. Uh, mostly because I just have this mentality now as a freelance writer that I'm just going to move on to the next thing. I'm just going to keep moving forward and so if the discussion is really about a film where all the pieces are in (laughs) then i'm gonna kind of move forward into something else Um, but there's also a part of me that's like gonna let this movie be a little bit as slippery as it is i mean one of the things that's both benefit and and detriment with us especially compared to peel's last film get out is that it's not as graspable as allegory you think you have a handle on what the film is trying to say but then it gets away from you or it doesn't make internal sense or you know i I think the more the movie explains itself the more impossible i think it is to understand or to really feel as consistent you know and i'm trying to figure out how forgiving of that i should be because i think the film wants to be telling us something it wouldn't have a line like we are Americans if it weren't Mm -hmm. but I think it's it feels better to let a lot of that stuff go and not try to pin uh, the film to any one meaning or the other
0: i guess i haven't been reading much of the let's try to pin this to a specific meaning takes but i've been reading about uh the symbolism i've been reading about the th- some of the the wilder fan theories rebecca alter has a really interesting piece at vulture called unpacking reddit's wildest theory about us which i read just like okay here we go with another one of these again and when I saw what the theory was, I was like, no, that's ridiculous. And then I read the evidence for it. I'm like, somebody thought through this like really closely and I'm not entirely convinced that it's Jordan Peele rather than Rebecca, but I respect a film that has this many moving parts that invites this kind of conversation, that that supports this kind of conversation. And I think Get Out was so complicated and rich and nuanced. And then Us is so detail-oriented and referential And it moves so rapidly in so many different directions that both of those films encourage this kind of conversation in a way that's very modern to the film moment. You know, in the way that Westworld was a show designed for the Reddit detectives to pick over endlessly, this feels like a film that is designed to be analyzed up one side and down the other. In the theater, I enjoyed it as a scary movie as a well-designed, well-choreographed, like visually interesting movie, but I walked out of it feeling pretty unsatisfied. And I like all of this conversation has kind of given me that satisfaction. So I don't know how it would play on a second viewing. I don't know what it's going to look like 10 years from now. But right in this moment, I find myself respecting it more than I necessarily did just from watching the film.
2: I get that. I, I think Get Out is such a clean metaphor. It's just such a, this is what this movie about. This is an extremely effective metaphor for depicting it. And us, I feel like there's a couple of different things going on at once, the most obvious one being about the underclass, about how your success in America means someone else's failure. I mean, it's just set up in such a way that mm. prosperity for this group of people means poverty for this group of people. Uh, but also, if, if you know, because the other characters because the alternate version of Adelaide's family that we see is such a parodic version of the people that we do know like sort of their their most you know sort of feral Caricatures of, of their of the behavior we've seen them undertake. It's also I think there's sort of a psychological reading into it too, where this is what we repress This is the worst of us, but just because we don't express it or we try to to tamp it down doesn't mean it goes away. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it as well. And I think those can live side by side quite well, and they do in this movie. But it's not an easily penned in bit of symbolism and I think that's fine I, I think you know I'm not a real fan of the ready detective approach to uh, talking about pop culture but I do think uh, spending some time poking around and exploring uh what everything in, in this you know how what all the pieces in this movie are and how they fit together is is uh, only makes it richer and I'm looking forward to seeing it again yeah I mean I
1: think you your, your first reaction has to be doesn't work I mean I, I mean I, I was somebody who recapped two seasons worth of Westworld and, and I think the show was terribly crippled by the let's you know get Reddit involved mentality. and just like, let's make this as convoluted and, and twisty and as much of a puzzle box as possible. And then you lose uh, the real thematic resonance that I think makes the show interesting. Um, that was a big problem with the second season of Westworld. I don't feel like that's a problem with us, though. I think that uh, um, what I like about us is that it's such a robust and confident second feature, and that Peel, I think, has grown. As a director from one film to the next, just the whole thing feels blown out and exciting and engaged and not sheepish. As a sec, you know, he's not somebody who's making this second movie in a cautious way or trying to duplicate a past success or trying to play it safe. I mean, he's, he's doing all kinds of interesting things. And one, one thing that I really appreciate about us and about Peel in general is that he has the ability to sell you on the mundane moments that other horror films always have. I mean, even the masters like Dario Argento, you're going to have some dead space leading from one set piece to the next. But what Peel is really good at is taking something like a conversation and a station wagon and making it pop, you know, making it lively, giving you really good dialogue and always giving you something to look at and respond to. He's uh, There's really not a moment in this movie where I was bored or disengaged or, or, you know, just the whole thing felt just kind of exciting on a superficial level and a substantive level to experience.
2: Yeah. At the siege happens, the first siege happens. What felt like very early in the film and we get the setup, we get the beach scene And then the other family shows up and from there never really takes a foot off the gas. Uh, There's some moments of humor uh, thrown in. And and, Mm -hmm. and people haven't really talked about that much that I've read that it's a pretty funny movie on top of everything else. But, you know, I was surprised by how the slow buildup I was expecting wasn't really there.
0: So, I mean, it sounds like we're all kind of sold on it as a discussion piece. Did you find it scary? Does it work as horror?
2: I, I did. I thought it was a pretty exciting piece of filmmaking. It didn't have that hereditary feeling that Scott had where I wanted to flee the theater at (laughs) at any point, but I did find it scary. I thought uh, Nyong'o's performance as Red was such an odd sort of, you know, parody of human behavior in a really interesting way. And I never really knew where that was going or really what the others were up to, even until the end of the movie, although I did guess the big twist about that felt red and, and did and you really yeah pretty early on it
0: came so out of the blue me. for me oh, no
2: no i i i i saw that coming a mile away huh uh, well, I know, I, I know I'm usually the person I'm, I'm not bragging because I'm usually the last person to pick up on a twist like that. But I, I that one I figured out. Yeah.
1: Well, it also, you know, it, the film is basically sort of the horror version of that uh, Simpsons episode with uh, the tree hustle horror thing where, where Bart has an evil twin who lives in the attic and he eats fish heads. And he and the, <laughs> the the kid, it turns out to be the good one. Right. Yes. Very
2: funny episode.
0: Sort of. Our doppelgangers here don't exactly turn out to be the good ones. I mean, despite that ending twist. Yeah.
1: What I'll say about the scariness of this: to me, the scariness ended as soon as they entered the house. I was quite on edge when this family is just standing at the, in the driveway and they're trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do. But once they kind of get in the house, I mean, it's it is it's exciting, intense, uh, like a thriller would be, but it becomes basically a home invasion thriller. And that's a slightly different genre for me than horror and one that is more about, you know, giving you a thrill than scaring the hell out of you. Yeah,
2: I keep calling them the others because I'm thinking, well, the others isn't the home. Gonna,
0: the oh, strangers. The yeah.
1: strangers. Sorry. Oh yeah, that, that that is definitely, there's so many film references in this movie, but the strangers is certainly one mm-hmm. of them.
0: Yeah, let's let's get to the film references in a in a minute. I think at first I got, I think I had the exact opposite reaction. Like mm. I was I was really unnerved by the duplicates outside the house. But at the same time, it kind of felt like, it felt like the strangers. It felt like something I'd seen before. I kind of felt like, all right, I know how this is going to go. It's going to be a siege. They're going to break in. It's going to be cabin in the woods. They're going to be chasing them around. And instead they broke in and started talking. And from the moment Red started talking, I entered into this space of this is deeply uncanny and I don't know where it's going. And that for me was a lot more frightening than an endless amount of, you know, chasing around in the wood with knives would have been. So, I put so much of what works in this film on Nyong'o's performance specifically as Red, which just incidentally, she apparently recently revealed that that weird vocal thing that she's doing is inspired by like an actual a condition that some people have. Hmm. And now there are a bunch of people who are up in arms about her mo- <laughs> mocking disabilities mm-hmm. and uh-huh. saying that people with disabilities are evil and it's turned into a whole thing. Uh. <sighs> so it was a, just
1: let us like the thing
0: sometimes well sometimes maybe you just shouldn't tell people what inspires you because <laughs> yeah. then they'll get on your case Isn't about the, it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, her performance, her dual performance, uh, for me, just fundamentally makes this movie.
1: No, she's great for the reasons you mentioned. Though, though, yeah, the twist tip-off is, you know, there, the fact that she can say things.
0: So among the umpty bazillion references to other movies, yes. I, the, the one that we, I think, most have to talk about here is the fact that in that opening shot of the TV doing the Hands Across America ad, <laughs> there is a, a series of VHS boxes for Chud... Uh, which, as we know, is about monsters underground.
2: No, let me back you up there. It's about cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Underground.
0: (laughs) There is a box for Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which there's some debate about exactly how that's being referenced here, but it's a touchstone in some ways. And there's a box for The Right Stuff, which... Seems to be baffling people a little in terms of how it applies, but the right stuff directed by one Philip Kaufman, mm-hmm. and I th- <laughs> I think it's just meant to cue us into the invasion of the body snatchers. Connection. That's interesting
2: because I, yeah, I couldn't beyond the presence of a government program of some kind. It was like the vaguest possible connection that I, you can make. But the Goonies is in there too, I believe. The, another film about underground adventures.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and also it was of course interesting to see that distinct two vhs box of the right stuff probably featured in captain marvel as well i know i'm ready like a, a, another one of within weeks a,
2: of each other it's very strange mm-hmm. Coff- there's gotta Coffman be is one. just, is just
0: it? out there doing his uh like his promo thing trying to get his uh box people, into... caught
1: up, people caught up on the right stuff it wasn't a huge hit in theaters it did not do as well as it should have and so people caught up with it at home on the are there, TV.
0: Are there any other film references in this that particularly like caught you or interested you
1: I mean, to me, one of the key references is to the film Don't Look Now, uh, speaking of past NPS shows, just this idea of this um, trauma that happened at a certain age and it reverberating through time and person being triggered into revisiting these moments by being in a certain place or, you know, seeing a certain symbol. And that that visual symbol. It takes on a significance that it wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, that feels so indebted to Don't Look Now.
2: The really obvious one is Jaws, which is just, you know, he just signposts that by having a kid wear a Jaws t-shirt. But then making the beach a scene of tension in Jaws almost seems like a challenge because it doesn't seem the kind of, it's the place you, think you know, you relax in your mind on a beach. And to do that here and then also realize you had to like avoid doing exactly what Jaws did, I think it's, it's really interesting what he does with that. And it's like the last sort of peaceful moment this film has before anything, before all hell breaks loose.
0: There's also that moment where Adelaide's mom says that they're filming a movie on the Santa Cruz mm-hmm. boardwalk, which is very clearly meant to be Lost Boys, the Joel Schumacher vampire film, uh, which is a junky ass movie from my youth. Oh, here
2: comes here come the letters, what? Tasha. People he, love that movie. If,
0: I love it too. It's a okay, junky ass okay. movie from my youth that I have a, oh, let, let, let me finish my sentence before you write the angry letters. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's the internet. Uh, I look, I'm getting tweets now, and we haven't even posted this.
2: <laughs> Hashtag cancel Tasha. <laughs>
0: I have such a love for that movie. So, of of course, just having somebody throw a completely throwaway line towards it uh, kind of gave me a hoot. And then like, there's a little reference towards Big uh, with the idea that Ali is not big enough yet to ride the roller coaster, which I guess happens at the beginning of Big as well and leads to the main character there wishing he was big. Just the degree to which he sandwiches in these little things in passing is this lazy pop culture uh, collection of references or is this as much fun as I think it is? I think it's both.
2: I mean, he's a very movie literate filmmaker, mm-hmm. but I, th- I think also a film that's so interested in how the past connects to the present and how yesterday's semi-misguided charity movement becomes uh, this is sort of a symbol for the failure of that kind of charity and then also returns as a strange parody between the, the others uh, re- emerging the inspiration for these doppelgangers just to, to announce their presence to the world, um, this, this for you know, forgotten moment, uh, in American history or semi-forgotten moment in American history doesn't really go away, it just returns in this, this sort of grotesque form. I don't, I, I I think it's fine. I think, I think that kind of film is you can pack as many references as you want to into it, it's appropriate, of course.
1: Famously, Hands Across America did not. You know, fully work in no. terms of uh, so I, Did not so I, fully work. I, not, like, I like not really
2: this, raise that much money,
1: but I do like the idea that maybe the idea of them, you know, there's there's some revenge and rising up. But also, let's just do it right this time. Let's do <laughs> Hands Across America. We'll go. We'll get it across the seas and the in the mountains. At the end, it's like all these places where the where the connections weren't made. They're gonna make it happen this I think time. Others
2: listeners may not not even know what Hands Across America is. I wrote a little explainer for, oh. for Slate, but. Just, oh, but, just briefly, yeah. it's the same organization that did uh, the We Are The World uh, were inspired to organize this event that on uh, May 25th, 1986 was going to be a human chain from sea to shining sea, and everyone from Ronald Reagan to Chewbacca were, was going to be part of it. Um, <laughs> it's, but country, it's a big country, Keith, big The problem is... But Chewbacca
0: is a big wookie. He's got a, he's got a big reach. Which is,
2: that's true. There, there were large gaps. Uh, and, and the <laughs> other problem is they it raised... A fair amount of money, but it also costs a lot of money. I think they were left with like $15 million to distribute, which is, you know, great. You know, not the... We're not going to end homelessness with us.
0: Well, you have a hard time ending homelessness with any one charity movement. Sure. There is a lot more to discuss about us, but there's also a lot to discuss about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so why don't we stick the two of those things together? We'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between us and Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
2: Okay, let's call the cops.
0: I did. They're 14 minutes away. What?
2: 14 minutes? Okay, 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 okay. okay. Jason, give me the bat. What bat?
1: The baseball bat. The bat. There's one in the corner. Yeah, here. Thank you. Jay. All right, hold on.
2: I got this. Let's try this again. No, 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 no. No. All right. Jay. I got this. I got this. Now I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all wanna get crazy, we can get crazy. Now the cops are already on their way.
0: Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I wanna start with the world's pettiest thing. Which is the fact that the others, as you keep calling them in Us, uh, wear these red jumpsuits and the single brown glove. And Jordan Peele has confirmed that as like a reference, a visual reference to Michael Jackson in the Thriller video, to his obsessive single glove, to like to the red jacket that he wears. The costume designer has done interviews about how these things were inspired by Michael Jackson. It all hinges on the Thriller shirt that Adelaide ends up wearing in the opening scene. So what are we to make of the fact that we've got Leonard Nimoy walking around in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in this bright red jumper with a single brown leather glove mm-hmm. on? Like That cannot be a coincidence. No,
2: I mean, you know, Jordan Peele did press for this movie in, in the exact same outfit <laughs> that Jack Nicholson wore in The Shining. So it's, that's I amazing. I, I love it, it so much. I think with him, if, if you think it's a reference to something, it probably is a reference to something.
1: The glove looks more similar to Body Snatchers than Michael Jackson, really, aesthetically. Speaking, it's a brown leather glove, right? In both cases, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's not, uh, it's like a driving glove in us and in body snatchers. It's this weird sort of like patch on a strap thing, yeah. Apparently, uh, Nimoy came up with it as just a way to distinguish the character because like a friend of his was wearing something similar to cover up a burn on his hand Mm. so it's just like this weird little character twitch that he thought would be interesting but it's memorable because it's so weird because it's so distinctive there's a moment midway through body snatchers where brooke adams and veronica cartwright are standing next to each other and they're both wearing these vibrant red dresses, like throat to knees, red dresses. They're different designs, but they're the same color. And again, I was thinking this just feels like the jumpsuits. This feels like something that Kaufman designed to pop off the screen. And again, nobody's, nobody's bringing it up. It, I couldn't find a good picture of it online, or I would have put that one on social media too, but it just, it feels like this has to have been an influence on these red jumpsuits. It's the same color red. And it's so odd that he would have two women like wearing these things that look like Handmaid's tail costumes almost uh, in the same sequence. Obviously they do pop off the screen because it's bright red in a dark background, but I, it's just, it's so odd to me that people aren't bringing this up as their, <laughs> obsessively mining this movie for connections.
2: Yeah, I I, I know this movie is stuck around, but I don't know if it's necessarily like the first movie people would, would even think to go to, though. Even despite the similarities, except for us, we're, we're, we're. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: on the cutting edge of us journalism. What do you guys make of how the two films handle the duplicates storyline, the the idea of like the sort of metaphorical "there's another version of you" kind of image?
1: I mean, for one, I guess in us, we're meant to sympathize. A bit with the others in a way that we're not. In body snatchers and body snatchers, they're an alien force of unambiguous evil. You know, it's an alien invasion movie; so they're taking over. But in us, the others are us, and so we have to contemplate what relationship they have to the characters, and then and then how what relationship we, the viewers, have to those fellow Americans uh, that that are un, unseen and un and undesirable and un. Uh, not privileged and in, in our out of sight, so the film isn't forcing us to confront and, to some extent, sympathize with the threat that the characters are being faced with.
2: In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think the horror comes from the idea of losing your identity, whereas in this, I think it really kind of comes in us. It, it's more of sort of the horror at seeing a twisted version of yourself. These people, the doppelgangers aren't necessarily there to, replace. I guess they do a fair amount of replacing, but no one's going to mistake these doppelgangers for the original. Their personalities are, are incredibly different, where I think the horror in Invasion of Body Sectors comes from, you know, what if I disappeared and nobody noticed? What, what if, uh, you know, everything that makes me, me, can be successfully duplicated? It's, it's a different kind of scary
0: What if I'm disposable?
2: Right. What if I'm disposable?
0: I feel feel
2: like... Not as like, what if I'm going to get my throat slit by someone who looks just like me, which is a scary prospect in its own way, but
0: it's
2: (laughs) less of of a, a philosophical sort of horror.
0: Yeah. I feel like there's so many different versions of the body snatchers theme, and some of them it seems like you're meant a little bit more to, if not sympathize with the body snatchers, at least think maybe this wouldn't be the worst thing. It might be bad for individual people, but maybe it wouldn't be so bad for humanity as a whole. We might lose love, but if we lost hate in the process, would that be better?
2: Tasha, you're way too persuasive on this front. I are you one of them?
0: Could, did, I've got this pod over here that I was going <laughs> to send home with you. But that, but in us, like, there's no question of that. Like The world that the duplicates are creating, we've seen what that world looks like. And it's incomprehensible. It's inhuman. Uh, First of all, it involves a whole lot of stabbing. Uh, But second of all, it's just like the inmates come out of the asylum. And there's never a sense that, you know, things might settle down into a quieter, like a much less human, a much less warm, a much less spontaneous and emotional and nuanced and creative world, Uh, but at least like a quieter, calmer one that's not going to destroy the planet. (laughs) The, The people in us... We don't know what that world's going to look like, although that that weird final image of, of the line of them maybe suggests less chaotic than we'd think otherwise. But as far as sympathizing with the other goes, I'm really curious what the final twist in us does to your sympathies. Because for me, it it really threw my feelings for Adelaide. Like we see this family that's trying to just trying to survive, just trying to fend off these monsters, and then we find out in the end that well, one of them actually is one of the monsters. Did it change how you felt about the film at all? You saw it coming so far in advance. Like, did it change your calculus? I think it's just
2: another complication of it. I, I think it's it's a uh, it's a messy movie by design. The feelings it wants to evoke are messy as well, and by putting. You know, making that switch in in between the two camps, it just it's just more even more complicated, and the fact that's the other, I mean, it's almost kind of you get you, to throw in another reference. It's almost sort of a, a trading places thing as well, because mm-hmm. the idea that this you know everyone, we see these doppelgangers are all feral, semi-human in, in many ways, but the one who had a chance, who had the opportunities, who had um, a, some privilege, was able to. Carve out a nice life for herself, educate herself, and 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 so on. So, if you want to see this whole. Strata of people as subhuman. You can't because that's not the case.
1: And yet, and yet, she's not changed by that, though. I mean, in the sense that this is an extraordinarily long con Mm -hmm. when you think about it. I mean, she doesn't that this other has has, is taken on since she was what eight or something like that, or ten, or however old the kid is at the beginning of the movie, and that she's gone all the way through to adulthood. She's gotten married she has two kids they have money they go on nice vacations for that not to have really altered the plan in any way is kind of strange what do you think about it isn't it
2: point of clarity the idea was that Adelaide, the, Ad- the Adelaide on the surface, does not know this is going to happen,
0: right? Oh, I don't think she knows that the, uh, the chuds are coming, if that's right. what you're asking.
2: exactly. So she's kind of, she's basically just divorced herself from that chud world.
0: I think the implication oh. is that she's, uh, like, I, I find it impossible to mm. believe that she's actually completely forgotten it, but I think she's repressed it.
2: Right, exactly. But then, so, but then why are but, the,
1: why the flashbacks of her as a kid just kind of like, oh, all right, I'm, I'm kind of you know, hatching the scheme. I think the
2: only scheme is to fit in with the above ground people.
0: Yeah. I think that the Hmm. scheme that we see, she's not
2: like the leader of the chuds. Yeah. I think that
0: we're meant to interpret the scheme in one way, but that's not actually what the scheme is. I just want to
2: make sure we're all on the same page in terms of, no, we we weren't, we weren't, but I guess I'm on (laughs) now.
0: I mean, I think that there's, there's enough going on in us and that some of it is obscure enough. I, I do think that where the film becomes problematic is sometimes not, Really knowing like how any of this could possibly meaningfully work. Like, I feel like everything that you don't understand in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in terms of how could this possibly work, like how could they have built those those pod centers so quickly or how are they communicating with each other all falls into kind of a, a place of, you know, where well, it's alien mysticism. It's all stuff that can be obscure without hurting the story. Whereas there's an awful lot in us that you're just like, But those rabbits live in the real world. They come from the real world. They're real rabbits. So theoretically, they need food and they're producing poop. And they may be having baby rabbits right and left. And that's why the chuds still have something to eat. But how could any of that system work and still leave that place glistening clean? Like there's there's just a lot of but how is this happening?
2: Yeah, I, I can't get hung up on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, it's not a film that, for all these little reasons, holds up to a huge amount of scrutiny. <laughs> because, yeah, it's... Um, um, but it, which is, again, fine. I mean, I do I do like how different it is from Get Out in that sense that we're, we're Get Out is much tidier and more programmatic in approach than this one. And so that's, I think it's it, there's a certain amount of growth on the part of Peel as a filmmaker audacity to allow this film to be to just to kind of blow out as much as it does and maybe not entirely make sense
0: i i just i find it fascinating that the film is startling enough constructed to support like an endless amount of theorizing about the relationship between pluto and jason but can't handle the single question of who's feeding the rabbits. Yeah, it's just it's a weird thing. Uh, Moving on to another connection. I think it's interesting that both of these films kind of play with the idea of like horrible friends. Uh, I I think it's really unclear in us what exactly Adelaide and Gabe are getting out of their relationship with Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss's characters. These two people who are apparently their best chums and they're just they're kind of awful people. Like, in the same sort of way that Donald Sutherland's character defends his friendship with Nimoy and kind of forces Jeff Goldblum to get along with him. But you're like, but what do they see in each other? Like Nimoy's character is kind of a terrible person. Uh and I, I just I think it's interesting that both of these films just kind of like play with relationships that invite you to ask, why are any of these people friends?
1: That question was a lot harder to puzzle out in us because you don't really see How these two couples could be really close friends, and even their kids are not the same age, and so they can't. It's not like you could say, "Well, there's maybe in a past where the kids would play together." But the husbands work together. I think
2: that's how they're tied together. It's sort of, I think it's sort of obligatory away from work fun time for the sake of this business relationship oh, maybe that, maybe
1: so. it was a thing like yeah we're just we're hey we're gonna be in santa cruz too and we can kind of yeah hang out one night or something like that or like on the on the beach one day or something there's that or weird there's
2: competitiveness that kind of... between them two is he got the new car i think it was a new car and just kind of like there to rub like it in his face you know? uh, yeah
1: i love the different tone that heidecker and, and moss bring to the table of as i mean it's almost like you know it reminded me of the characters of who's afraid of virginia wolf
2: yeah for sure there, uh, katie i was looking for this katie hasty at entertainment weekly has a couple of great tweets about elizabeth moss's characters uh, i'll just read them the vodka clock, and royal wineness of elizabeth moss's character and us really if peripherally illustrates such a dark culture of women's cute relationship to alcohol and the very pervasiveness of alcoholism there's ruins to it, the offspring and the, and the spouse. Like, you know, she is like, you know, sort of a fun drunk, but there's, you can kind of, even though you only see a little bit of it there, you can kind of see the toll that's taken on her, her kids who've Kind of turned out to be terrors, and uh, the horrible relationship that, that she has with with uh, Tim Heidecker, whose character clearly has some issues of his own.
1: And I, I think Heidecker handles the other character so brilliantly, Yeah, that's scary oh. and oh. funny <laughs> at the same it's time. It's so funny. It's yeah. it's like a silent comedy because he's a you know he can be a big guy, and the way he's the way he's photographed makes him seem you know like a monster, but he's mm-hmm. also you know. A stumbling drunk as well and the way those two things come together, is, again, gives the film another, a different flavor and makes it makes it fun.
0: I think both of these movies do some interesting things with inviting people to play dark versions of themselves. Like, I don't feel like Nimue's, uh pod version of himself feels all that different, as, as Keith commented, all that different from the non-pod version of himself, mm. assuming we see a non-pod version of himself. But uh, the difference between Jeff Goldblum as a stressed out poet who half owns a mud bath company and, uh, you know, monster version who's only interested in telling people to to shut up and sit down and conform – uh, is really stark and the performance is really interesting and then you look at something like uh winston duke and us and like the difference between that just like affable charming dad joke telling everybody get along hang out with tim heidecker kind of guy and the the like mute grunting animalistic uh version of uh, of himself as an other uh i i think is just is like, the physical performance alone is very interesting.
2: He's not scary at all as the dad. Mm-hmm. And, and he uses physicality in a really different way as the doppelganger.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: that's an interesting thought because the doppelgangers in us do contrast so sharply with their human selves, except for Adelaide and her, other where they they do have this thing in common and they they are having this conversation and they feel like extensions of each other in the way that the other characters don't and their doppelgangers don't uh, because maybe they have that shared history that the other characters don't have with their doppelgangers.
0: I I do have to give a shout out for us as uh, Shahadi Wright-Joseph who plays Zora, the teenager. (laughs) I I honestly think one of the strongest, weirdest performances in that film, apart from Lupita Nyong'o's, is the way she brings across her doppelganger as just this like eerily smiling, like nightmare version of teen perfection. You know, the the non-other version of her is a kid who's just edging into teenagehood and is just like just learning to kind of sass her parents and roll her eyes at how lame everything is. And then we see the perfect polished version of her who never stops smiling and it's deeply unsettling yeah
1: well also i think i think there's a sense that she really wants to do this you know she's very engaged in being you know in the hunt so yeah that of the doppelganger characters she she is uh, has projects the most kind of creep and, and menace for me for sure
0: what do we think about how the two films use humor i mean both of them kind of have their lapses into jokiness
1: as i said previously that's a Big uh, plus for the Peel film to be able to have as many laughs isn't it, as in it. I don't know if
2: I'll ever not laugh at a voice recognition gone wrong. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's good. Gag. <laughs> it just works every time. Oh,
1: that was so. That it was such a perfect song choice too. Uh, I mean, I guess there's not as much comic relief in the uh, Kaufman version, but it is it's sprinkled in there, and and uh, you know, particularly I think of that tension between uh, Nimoy and gold i think the, i think the, the film has some good comic payoffs on that
0: and just the weirdness of gold non-pod character although i i still find the dog in the mask thing hilarious <laughs> like like laugh out loud okay that's weird and uncanny but it's still pretty darn funny do
1: you think it was yeah i guess it was probably
0: intended as sort of a shock laugh
2: yeah and a laugh and then you'll dream about it for the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs>
0: apparently there used to be more laughs in the film and the the studio told Kaufman to take them out. Hmm. Like he, he described a test screening where people were going back between back and forth between laughing and horror and uh, how he, uh, they were, they were told to kind of cut some of the laughs.
2: It's not a bad note. I don't think, I think that film works best if, if at a certain point you stop laughing. I'm oh. going
0: to say the same thing about us. Like I didn't love the Alexa joke much no. like, uh, I didn't love the comic interludes in get out like for me Mm. successfully pulling off tension and horror is so complicated and difficult like deliberately puncturing it. It it always surprises me when filmmakers choose to do that outside an actual horror comedy.
2: I think at a certain point you have to stop though. I think I think us does that as well. After a while the laughs dry up.
1: No, but you still have all this stuff with with Heidecker and Moss and, and, the, and when they turn and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, after that. Not turn, but when they're, yeah.
2: Whatever's yeah, going maybe
1: on, so. Yeah, maybe so. I'm fine with comic relief in my horror films as long as it feels organic and not, not forced. I don't feel like it breaks up the tension too much and it, and it can sort of enhance the entertainment value. I mean, Us is just a wildly entertaining movie. I don't know. It could have been s- scarier for the less funny. Uh, I'm not sure.
0: Well, we talked some about the sound effects in uh, Body Snatchers in particular. We can talk a little about the music in both movies, like the the score in Us by composer Michael Abels, who also did the score for Get Out it's just so strong. I think it's, it's mostly like drumming and, and chanting. It's, there's just a a sense of, again, tension and otherworldliness about it, especially early on, uh, that I think really contributes. But part of what it contributes is that, uh, that uncanny feeling that we get from the sound effects in Body Snatchers.
2: Uh, he's great. He's someone I look forward to hearing, hearing more of. And I think in both this and in Body Snatchers, they're, they're not traditional film scores. They're not the expected sounds necessarily. And, and the qualities you point out about the S-score If I, you know, I don't think they're necessarily the obvious tones to go for in this sort of movie, but it works out really well.
0: I think just to wrap up, like we've we've written between the three of us a ton about how horror movies tend to reflect their era Mm -hmm. how horror is just one of those genres that inevitably kind of kind of tells you what people find scary at a certain time. You have any thoughts on how either of these films we, we, we talked a fair bit, I guess, about 70s paranoia and, you know, the parallax view era filmmaking of just don't trust authority. Don't don't trust anything that anybody has to say. How does us compare in terms of, of channeling like modern horrors, modern fears? Well, I
2: think ultimately it's uh, another way it works is one of the, the shadow results of success is you get all this stuff. But then someone might take your stuff away, you know, and that's, that's, that's the central family has enjoyed a certain amount of benefits of, of the economy and that could change. They could, you know, the, the thing about having a doppelganger who's living this, this deprived existence is maybe you could switch places with them and that may be the, uh, that's another way this film is scary.
0: I feel like both of these films just kind of rely heavily on the idea that other people are essentially unknowable, Sure, that it's just very difficult. You can maybe know the people who are closest to you and Body Snatchers in particular, I think makes a strong point that like the the people who are closest to you are the people that you know best, the people that you might be able to rely on most in a pinch, but Out beyond the immediate circle of, of your loved ones and your friends is a vast, vast circle of people you don't know and may have a very hard time understanding. And as they form political movements or social movements, as they engage in group behavior that you can see in public places, they become just more and more mysterious and more and more threatening. If you allow yourself to be threatened by it,
2: I saw another some contemporary resonances in Invasion of the Body Snatchers too. Which anyone wants to remake it for twenty nineteen. Here is my free screenwriting uh, idea: is so much the idea of people being radicalized online and suddenly believing things they didn't believe before, and all of a sudden you you know we have a we have a, uh, a film critic friend who talks about. Uh, a friend of his who's always sending him Jordan Peterson videos to watch and just, you know, these, these ideas hmm. that spread um, like, I don't know, seed pods or something through the internet. And, and I think there it works as a metaphor for that. However, many decades before that. Particular form of ideologies and and strange ideas and hateful thoughts spreading uh, even existed.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean that's the nice thing about this invasion story is its adaptability to different. I mean I think if I recall the Ferrara film I mean, which takes place on a military basis mm-hmm. about conformity, which mm-hmm. seems like of seems like kind of a natural for that setting. But I would say like with us, I mean, it's so reflective of an era of fierce division between people in the country, of, of us not being able to Get along, and see each other, um, you know, and being able, to, you know, I mean, even if and we're sort of literally divided amongst ourselves, you know, at war with ourselves. That I think really, you know, reflects this very fraught and fractured and tense and hostile time in america so uh, i think it's plugged right in there
0: yeah i think there's always going to be a space for films about our fear of other people and our fear of what we could become and our fear fear that we're maybe individually speaking not the most important person in the world and uh not necessarily irreplaceable speak for yourself. Well, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and for digital rental via streaming services like Vudu and iTunes. Us is currently in the theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices in your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
1: Well, I wanted to do kind of a mini roundup of some of the highlights of the True False Film Festival I went to earlier this month. That I know are coming out and that people can catch pretty soon uh, on it, either on streaming services or in theaters. Uh, the best film I saw at True Falls is a movie called American Factory. Um, this is a, a documentary uh, that Netflix picked up. It's about this Chinese company, window company named uh, Fuyao, that took over a shuttered GM plant in Dayton, Ohio, and took over. And this was there was this absolutely massive. Culture change in terms of what they expected from American workers and what they actually got from American workers. The safety conditions, which ended up being quite deplorable, the wages, which were also not not up to, up to snuff. I mean, there was just a whole. It, it's such a it's a fascinating, uh, funny, humane film about different approaches to culture and, and labor and how difficult it is for you know the global economy to f- function smoothly. Um, so it, it's endlessly fascinating and something you can unpack from a million different angles. Maybe it's something we can put a pin in and, and catch later, but it is going to be uh, on Netflix at some point. They haven't announced when. Um, another film that's going to be on Netflix uh, that I saw that just was announced today is coming on the service on May 1st. It's called Knock Down the House. Uh, this is a, a film by Rachel Lears about four you know, insurgent leftist candidates in their attempts to um, seek public office Um, and of course what's so exciting about about it is that one of those four candidates is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, it is remarkable the degree to which this film was absolutely on the ground floor for you know the year's biggest political story I mean they catch ocasio Cortez when she's a bartender and when she's actually at a point where she's just considering running. I mean, that's how early they get her and you get these angles on this momentum that's building around her campaign, but, and also just the sheer shock of her winning, which, which, which nobody expected to be the one poll that ran prior to the election itself had her down over 30 points. It was a shock to everyone. Um, so it's fascinating, you know, she dominates the film. I mean, clearly it was a situation where, um, the filmmaker, Rachel Lears had, footage of all four of these women and then, you know, the documentary is almost knocked off balance by Ocasio-Cortez but it's fascinating and, and the other three women from uh, you know one, one in Nevada one in Missouri one in West Virginia uh, all are interesting and also, also kind of give you a sense of like where things are at in the Democratic Party and in the potential for uh, you know a much more uh, leftist much more progressive uh, future uh, the, than what we were used to so that's pretty good and then the last one I wanted to recommend is a film called Midnight Traveler it's going to be uh, Oscilloscope just picked it up say it's, it's a film that was shot on three phones it was about a, about a family um uh, Hassan fazili is the director his uh he his wife and his two children flee afghanistan because the taliban have called for his death he's an artist who had this cafe that ran afoul of a afoul of a mullah so they're on the run and they spend three years in peril and all that peril is captured via phone and was uh, sent to a, a french filmmaker and her name is emily madavian and she assembled the footage and to put together what i think is almost like the digital equivalent of like a message in a bottle i mean this family is still in trouble they're still in germany they're still they still have not figured out where their home is going to be and it is a, it is a very interesting you know, sort of inside look of what refugee like is really like so those are the three films i'd recommend american factory and knocked on the house, which are both Netflix and Midnight Traveler, which will come out uh, via Oscilloscope later in the year.
0: I'm really excited about the chance to see Knocked on the House. That's it's been at a couple different festivals that I've been at where the times just haven't lined mm-hmm. up, but I have heard so many good things about it. I mean, I'm it's, it's, pretty I mean, excited it's, for it. It's
1: yeah. I mean, just just to see that part of it's lightning in a bottle. That specific. It just I mean, apart from its other qualities, uh, and I think it it's really reinforces her story in a in a strong way. It makes her authenticity, uh, her charisma, all. All that stuff comes through so, so strongly in that movie. Tasha?
0: Well, I would not be doing my job as a married person if I did not, in fact, take this opportunity to plug my husband's podcast. I'm honestly a huge fan of Immunities, the the drama that he's been doing, uh, just finished up its third season, that very much comes off of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers style stories. It's specifically about an alien takeover of the world uh, that happens through people looking at each other. And it's it's it very much a like a body snatchers story about people whose individuality and uniqueness disappears when they're taken over but their personalities remain. I love this story but more to the point given that he is uh, has just wrapped up a four podcast series about the body snatchers movies if you want to hear more about this film or if you want to hear in-depth analysis uh, of the 1956 version or the other two versions which are perhaps somewhat less classic and memorable but still have a lot of- to talk about, um, you can go look him up. The podcast is called Immunities. The uh, discussion of the Body Snatchers movies are uh, rolling out uh, currently. And you can find it at Dueling Genres, the uh, podcast network that he belongs to. Um, But in terms of uh, more filmic stuff, there's a little film uh, from 2002 called Lost in La Mancha, which is a delightful documentary about Terry Gilliam's miserable failure and an attempt to put together a film called uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. That film is now finally coming out. I know that there are people that don't believe it. Uh, My husband, every time I bring it up, uh, laughs at me. I I say, I've seen this film. I I actually sat through the whole thing. It exists. And he's like, yeah, whatever. This is a a cute prank. But no, uh, Terry Gilliam's Man Who Killed Don Quixote is actually in the world. It is coming to theaters on April 10th as part of a, a fathom of event um so like one of those strange special event things it'll be in like 700 theaters and then it's going to have a theatrical run starting april 19th how do they um,
1: get all those prints around <laughs> those fathom people all those someday, film prints?
0: someday their phone prints will come um i tried to make an argument for uh doing man who killed don quixote uh paired with another gilliam on this podcast but there are so many other things coming up that we want to hit we don't think we're going to get to this one so i figured i would just bring it up it's been getting some bad, bad reviews, and I understand why. For people, perhaps who are not as as into the Terry Gilliam story as I am. I feel like it's a lesser Gilliam in some ways. I feel like it's repeating some some themes that he's just obsessed with over the course of his entire career about the place of fantasy and storytelling and escapism in the world, about the way that the world presses down on us and makes us all crazy, about the way that creativity is your only outlet and pretending the world is something other than it is is the only way to make the world better than it is. So in some ways, watching it is is like experiencing a best of, but I feel like this one goes in the direction of the Fisher King in terms of being a little more tight and pointed about some of these themes than some of his films are. It centers on a performance by Adam driver uh, that I think is just delightful. He kind of famously lost his original Don Quixote for the film, Um, And replaced him with Jonathan Price, who he's been working with Mm. since Brazil, and who just seems a really appropriate person for the role. It is a Terry Gilliam movie. It is shaggy. It is anarchic. It is all over the place. Uh, Its themes are being shouted through a megaphone. But it's also funny and strange and sad, and I think it's pretty delightful. I would like for people to see it, even if uh, Terry Gilliam himself has become a deeply problematic fave of late with his delightful comments about Me Too and representation and how people just, women just have to sleep with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead. That's just the way the, the business works. I understand people who want to cancel Terry Gilliam I will never be able to cancel him because he made my favorite film of all time. So I'm telling people, you know, he's got a movie. It's coming out into the theaters. Tideland? It's... <laughs> Hush you, you, you pod creature, you. Pod Scott's favorite film of all time is Tideland. My favorite film of all time is Brazil. I still really like Terry Gilliam. I wish he wasn't being a jerk right now. Go see his movie. Keith?
2: Uh, This Sunday I saw the passing of uh, Larry Cohen, uh, the B-movie filmmaker um, who made one memorable film after the other in the 70s and 80s. Last year I saw the release of of a film called King Cohen, directed by Steve Mitchell, which is a really nice overview of Larry Cohen's career that gets into his methods and (laughs) the madness behind him. Um, Some of his early films were just shot on the streets in New York, no permits, just Show up, shoot, and leave before anyone can notice. Um, and he talks to people he worked with, like Fred Williamson, is, is someone who starred in a lot of his films, and also people that appreciate his work, like J.J. Abrams and Martin Scorsese, on there singing his praises as well. I recommend this movie before, so I, you know, I definitely if you want to know more about Cohen, it's a, it's a good place to look. Uh, just to go a little deeper, there's some Cohen films that you might enjoy if you just want to sample, if you're sort of intrigued by the obituaries or, or by King Cohen, um, I would go with. The, the Stuff, which is a strange sort of anti-consumerism f- uh, film he made in, in the 1980s about a, a food product that consumes the people that eat it. Um, or alternately, probably the weirdest film he made was called God Told Me To, which is probably less said about the better, but it's about a policeman investigating some very strange crimes um, that seem to have a bunch of unrelated people committing murders in the same way including uh, uh, Andy Kaufman in one scene it's a very odd hmm. movie that goes to some very strange places but that's part of what made Cohen appealing is he had a very uh, peculiar vision uh, he made he sort of wild he was a great idea man he created these wild premises and would just kind of uh, um make films for the audience that are willing to, to go places with them and with uh, actors that were willing to play along, you had know, sort of a little stable of, of regulars like Michael Moriarty who would just show up and do very intense methody performances in the middle of these genre movies. Uh, there really wasn't anyone else like him. I mean I think there you know would be better if there were more more like him today. but he left behind a, a very fine body of work that's worth exploring.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so much fun watching his films. I mean, they're, they're none of he never made like a flawless film. No. <laughs> um, they, they, they always have these concepts that just weren't quite realized as perfectly as you'd want them to be, but um, they're full full of surprises and fun. I think Q's a really good one. Q's a really, a really Wink, good one. Wing Serpent. And, and I'm with you on, on the stuff, which has the, the line uh, uh, everybody has to eat shaving cream every once in a while. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, I like
2: that, like even like later in his career, he was just a great idea guy um he wrote the first script to phone booth mm-hmm. in which someone is trapped in a, in a phone booth and he followed it with the script for cellular <laughs> which which involves someone using a cellular phone so it's kind of like we did the stationary phone maybe let's do the movie yeah. with the phone on, on the run
1: definitely uh, yeah no I, I think if you're a genre fan you, you have to have, spend some time with larry cohen
0: i just never quite got over the uh, the poster for q with its uh, tagline its name is quetzalcoatl just call it Q that's all you'll have time to say before it tears you apart
1: (laughs) that's a great line that's a great tagline it's it's
0: such a great tagline great poster too yeah that was one of those films that uh, kind of based on the poster and and the tagline and the image like obsessed me as a kid and then I finally saw it as an adult and I'm like this is so much more fun than I would have thought it was Mm -hmm. you know It's, it's not very scary but it's a really enjoyable film yeah Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out April 16th and 23rd. Genevieve, what are we doing next? In the new DCEU movie Shazam, a 14-year-old misfit gets transformed into an adult superhero. He has super strength, he's bulletproof, and he can almost sleep tall buildings in a single bound. But he can also buy beer and all the junk food he wants because he has the superpower of being a grown-up. In that respect, Shazam has drawn a lot of comparisons to the 1988 coming-of-age fantasy Big, a connection it acknowledges by paying homage to the film's most famous scene. In our next set of episodes, we'll look at Big and Shazam, and what they tell us about boys in their early teens suddenly turning into men, and how that gift can seem like a curse. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Us, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith.
2: Oh, you can find me on Twitter at kfips 3000 You can find my writing at places like Vulture and Slate and The Verge, Polygon, Decider, I'm over the place these days. Scott, how about you?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at uh, The New York Times, uh, Vulture NPR the ringer um i have a, a piece on um the matrix that i'm sure that, that has already torn up the internet <laughs> it, as we're recording it it runs it's running tomorrow so who who knows how what's, that, what's what's
2: the gist of this piece what's it about
1: it's about the malleability of it in, ter- of it in terms of it the way it's inter- interpreted um mm-hmm. about how you can have uh people on the alt-right red pilling you and you can have people who see it as a as a trans allegory and a metaphor for change and and how you come across both of those readings, and how those readings of the film were not, didn't really surface until recently, um, hmm. and, and, and were not really part of the way the film was received in '99. So it gets it all that stuff.
2: We should do a Matrix episode. <laughs>
1: he should that's a great idea Compare
0: <laughs> pair it with the other two Matrix movies everybody would enjoy that
1: uh, with Tasha
0: uh, I am the film and TV editor at theverge.com you can find my writing over there you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson you can find me on an upcoming or possibly outgoing by now episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour where they had me on <sighs> to talk about what we do in the shadows Our producer, Genevieve Kosky, is on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. She's the deputy TV editor over at Vulture, where you can find possibly her work and definitely many, many things she has commissioned and edited. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show or find our keynote essays, which we've started posting online, by visiting nextpictureshow.net. Find us on Twitter at NextPicturePod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Show. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already and you've tuned me out because you've heard this so many times, (laughs) please consider it anyway, because Apple Podcasts subscriptions are an important way of getting podcasts, more prominence and more listeners. I don't know why I'm singing. I think the pods have taken over. I'm very tired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I just I just need some sleep. That's, I, 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 that's all I need.
1: What would our level of appreciation be for ratings and reviews, Tasha, if people were to go on Apple Podcasts?
0: I think our appreciation would be pretty high. Unlike pod people, we still have need for love and hate. We want to hear your love. Hell, we'll take your hate. No, uh, no,
1: we won't. <laughs> Just Uh, like just STFU if you if you don't like the show.
0: I mean, if you don't like the show, the fact that you're still listening through this rambling closing is pretty (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Why did they listen to every last second of this podcast just to boo us? We don't know. But we would like to continue doing this podcast, and that means finding new listeners to keep the show going, and every thumbs up helps us do that. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.